Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I was beginning ministry that as a pastor, you get maybe one, or if God's really moving, you get two sermons in a year where you get to take the gloves off and just speak from your heart and really employ any scrap of influence you have in people's lives to say, this you absolutely need to hear. This is not one of those messages that is just another brick in the wall um, for you to walk away going, that was kind of good and some good stories, some great jokes. But it's one of those messages from my heart that I would like to challenge you with because it's been challenging me. Um, It's a text I preached from back in 2005. And ever since then, the ideas, especially one of the ideas in that sermon, has been haunting me for a long time. And so that message back in 2005 was a little bit busy. There was a lot going on in there. Today, I want to focus on only that one point, which has been kind of gnawing at me for those five years. The passage is Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 26. And if you're taking notes, the title I want to use for this message is, What Would They Call Us? What Would They Call Us? So Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 26. Here it goes. Now to those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. That's the word of God. And I'm thankful that last week, Pastor Frank um, really developed some of the teaching about Barnabas and his ministry and his humility out of this text. I'm not going to belabor the rest of that passage. I'm going to zero in on the last sentence of this passage where it says, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Another way I've seen that translated is the, the Followers of Christ were called Christians for the first time in Antioch. Let me give you some background on this. Um, The Jews who had followed Christ were huddled together after Jesus was crucified. He rose from the dead. He dwelt among them, lived among them for 40 days. And then in a miraculous way, he arose bodily into heaven before their very eyes and disappeared into the clouds. Now, those 120 or so Christians who
who were gathered together in Jerusalem were afraid, but they began to be emboldened having seen the resurrected Christ. And they started to preach the gospel boldly in that city. But the thing was, God had wanted them not only to preach in Jerusalem, but to spread the gospel through all the nations. They weren't doing that partly because there was a lot of fruit going on. And that that just teaches me one of the ways a church can get stuck is by succeeding. Sometimes the stickiest thing in the world that gets you stuck at one level is that you're winning the game at that one level. Right? It reminds me of this one video I saw of this grown man. He stayed in kindergarten forever because it was easy. And he was doing really good at it. And so in the playground, he's playing basketball against these little kids. He's just rejecting shot after shot in your face, right? And, and it's easy to win if you stay at one level. But sometimes it keeps us from realizing God has called us to something more. And so um, Stephen, a deacon in the church, stands up publicly and declares the gospel in this fabulous way. He just bold preaching of the gospel by a deacon, right? We often say only elders should preach, but a deacon's out there leading lots of people to Christ. But he made the the Jewish leaders so angry, they stoned him to death. I don't know what you picture when you hear stoning, um, but it's not like they took pebbles and they threw it at his face and he was annoyed and then the annoyance ended up killing him. I want you to know that they killed you in stoning by taking Uh, rocks that were at a minimum the size of a baseball, a major league baseball, but more likely the size of a volleyball. And they would heave these at you, and they would start with the the baseball-sized ones, and they would hit you until you fell to your knees. And once you were immobilized, they would take the bigger ones and just dash them against your head and against the bones of your body until eventually you were buried on the spot under all the rocks, a heap of broken flesh. This is what happened to Stephen for preaching the gospel. And as you can imagine, it emboldened the enemies of the gospel to go after the rest of the Christians. And I don't know if, you, if this is how you'd be, but if I were a Christian in that city, I'd be like, I'm running. I don't want to end up like that. And that's exactly what they did. God used that fight or flight self-preservation instinct. And that persecution drove many of these Christians out of Jerusalem to flee for their lives. As they were fleeing, Acts 8, verse 4 tells us that everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. But the vast majority of them only preached the gospel to their fellow Jews. Because until that time, they really believed that this Christian movement, the following of Jesus, was only meant for the Jews. It was the next chapter of the Jewish experience. What they were surprised to realize as Peter preaches to Cornelius and other events happen, is non-Jews are also able to know Jesus and to be saved through the gospel. And so some of these guys go around the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and as they go north and slightly to the west, they settle in a city called Antioch. And in Antioch, there's a pretty large Jewish community gathered there. About a seventh of the population of the city are Jews. But they begin preaching the gospel to Gentiles, to Greek-speaking people who are to them total foreigners, other people who had nothing to do with the gospel. And here's the amazing thing. As they preach the gospel, these people in Antioch are coming to Christ in droves. It's a movement now. They don't know what to do with this. It's not an isolated case or here or there. All these people are starting to come to Christ. And so news of this reaches the ears of the leaders at Jerusalem. And they dispatch Barnabas to go. 
And Barnabas gets there, and he's just a naturally encouraging guy. He's not a player hater. He's not like, yeah, whatever. I could lead even more people to Christ in that city. He goes and sees what these guys are doing. Unauthorized evangelists. Guys, they're not controlling. Just they're, they're so exuberant for Christ. They're preaching the gospel, and things are happening. Instead of shutting them down or controlling them, he fans the fire. He goes, this is wonderful what God's doing through you. I want to encourage you in this and make it happen even more. So he stays with them, encourages them, and the movement grows even bigger. And so as a result, he goes, well, all right, we've got like thousands of people coming to Christ. But Barnabas says to himself, I'm a good encourager, but I ain't no teacher. I can help you be happy in the Lord but happily ignorant in the Lord. We need a real teacher to come and help these people understand what life with Christ is about. So he goes to Tarsus. He seeks out Paul, who is an amazing teacher. And in partnership, the two of them, and hear me now, we really do need the two of them together. We can't just have happy-go-lucky. Everything is good. Encourage you, brother. You just press on. If you just have that, it's not enough. But sometimes, can you just admit with me, the best teachers are some of the coldest, driest people you're ever going to meet. I'll teach you the truth, but I won't love you. Right? I mean, that's just the... And so we kind of need both kinds of people together. And that's what they had in Antioch. And as a result, they stayed for a year and they discipled these people in a systematic regimen of training in their faith. These people are being given basic training like in the military for how to do everything as a Christian. I think that's a very beautiful picture. Here's the interesting thing about it. Revival is breaking out among the Gentiles in Antioch, but this is probably one of the last cities in the Roman world you would expect such a thing to happen. To give you a little history of the city of Antioch, it was founded by a man named Seleucus Nicator. He was one of the generals under Alexander the Great. You guys heard of him? played by Colin Farrell in the motion picture. (laughs) Alexander the Great was a young Greek leader around mid-30s, very handsome, very charismatic. He was the kind of guy, I guess he would look kind of like Colin Farrell, I don't know. You, You would follow this guy instinctively because he was just exuded confidence and masculine appeal and sexiness and all that. And just men and women alike wanted to follow this guy. So he raised up this huge empire by his early 30s, and then he died. Well, his his generals, when the empire began to be disrupted, they took all their wealth, and they started traveling, and they began founding cities. And Seleucus, one of his great generals, basically founded the city of Antioch. By the time that Jesus arrived on the scene, Antioch was the third greatest city in the Roman Empire. It, it, It was only behind Rome itself and the city of Alexandria in terms of size, population, commercial wealth, and importance. And so it was a major city. What's the third city right now in the U.S.? Anyone know? It used to be L.A. Is it still L.A.? It used to be New York, Chicago, L.A. I don't know if it's still the case. That's why we're called the second city. But um, it was a very important city. One of the most prominent features of the city of Antioch was a beautiful botanical garden called the Grove or the Pleasure Park of Daphne. Right away, that sounds a little shady, doesn't it? I'm going to go to the Pleasure Park of Daphne. If you know your Greek mythology, Daphne was a nymph, from which we get the English word nymphomaniac. The nymphs were very um, physically appealing and morally loose creatures 
who delighted in the physical pleasure of sex. And they didn't care who they had it with. And so they would often be in the forest seducing unwary travelers and, you know, so that kind of thing. So they basically built an entire park to the Greek nymph Daphne, who is pretty famous in mythology for her looseness. In this park, they built a temple to Daphne. And on a regular basis, there would be festivities in that park where it was basically wild, um, depraved sexual practices in celebration of Daphne's sexuality and moral looseness. In other words, it was just a giant, gross, disgusting sex party done in the name of religion. It was so bad that even the pagan writers in that day singled out Antioch as an example of excess in our culture. They said, because of things like the pleasure park of Daphne, Greek culture and thereafter Roman culture will decline. We have people like that saying stuff right now in America about internet porn and Hollywood and things like that and runaway incomes in professional sports. And we're all going, oh, this is the doom of America. You hear people like that all the time, don't you? Well, that's what, 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 that's what the city of Antioch represented. And so you can imagine these people surprised when they come to the seat of pagan idolatry and people are starving for the truth of the gospel and they're shedding their old ways and they're coming to Jesus Christ. Now, not everybody came to Christ, but many did. And it was in that city that because it was no longer a fringe movement, but something the people of the city could not ignore, the city of Antioch had 500,000 people living there. It's a pretty big-sized city. And they needed a name to refer to this new group of people who was creating quite a ruckus in their city. And they racked their brains, I imagine. Some people got together and said, we've got to call these guys something. What should we call them? And after racking their brains, the one term that they all agreed upon was the word Christian. This is not a name that the Christians gave to themselves. Here's what we'd like you to call us. Sort of like when that guy goes, I want you to call me the artist formerly known as Prince. It was bad when he said, I want you to call me Prince. But now I want you to, and now I want you to just call me the artist, right? People do that. Famous people change their names all the time. And they tell us what we should call them. That's not how Christianity got its start. We weren't called Christians. We said, would you call us the people of Christ? It was a derogatory name given by the unbelieving citizens around them. They said, you guys are obsessed with this Christ. It's Christ this, Christ that, Jesus this, Jesus that. We're going to call you Christians because you are obsessed with this Christ. And that idea has haunted me for five years. I mean, they were observed by unbelievers from a distance and unanimously it was decided that the one thing that marks these people is an obsession with Jesus Christ. And so in an effort to tease them, they named them after their most holy leader. And that's left me with this lingering question. I wonder what they would call us. And I know right now, some of you are just sitting here going, I hope this isn't going to take that long. Bears are going to play and blah, blah, blah. You could go home not hearing anything I just said. I think our church in specific and the kingdom of God will be much weaker for it. 
This is something we all need to hear, and God has been doing a real big number on me this week through this preparation of this sermon. What would they call us? What would they call you? I once had in my car a slow leak in one of my tires. Any of you guys ever experienced that? Just annoying. After a while, it's like you're constantly filling it up, but you don't see the hole. There's no nail sticking out. It's so hard to find. And they tell you, why don't you just take the tire and dip it in soap? soap? Who's got that time or the means to do that? I, I don't know what I'm doing. I can barely fill up my gas. And so I just keep driving. I keep driving. And then when it gets real low, I fill it up. Here's the thing about a slow leak. The loss of air pressure is so incremental, you really don't notice it's happening. The outer form of the tire pretty much looks the same. It's only when you put the weight of the car and start driving, you say something really feels off. And if you catch it early enough, you can do something to save not just your car, but possibly your life. It's so easy, though, to miss it. I feel like in American Christianity... We're experiencing exactly that kind of a slow leak. And what's leaking out of Christianity in the United States, in my humble opinion, is Jesus himself. And that really is shocking because the guest at the birthday party has left the building and we're still partying like it's 1999. Doesn't something feel wrong about that to you? I mean, I, was at, I had a birthday party once in college. I left the party for an hour. I came back. No one even knew I was gone, man. It was my party, and no one even missed me for an hour. How messed up is that? And I just feel very strongly that in the Christian church in the United States, we are doing more than ever before. We are resourced better than ever in history. But Jesus is slowly leaking out of this whole thing. And I feel like as a pastor, a minister of Christ, it's my duty to sound the alarm. And I can only sound it because I think the leak is happening here too in me. I'm not proud of saying that. But I've just been thinking about the, the place of Jesus in my personal life. What about you? I mean, I know this is your historic faith, the faith of your father and mother perhaps. I know this is what makes you feel like a good person but I'm asking you, honestly, aside from helping to determine what kind of person you'll marry, how hard you'll work at your job, how faithfully you'll pay your taxes, maybe you don't speed, maybe you wrestle with guilt over your porn addiction, maybe that's what Christianity has meant to you so far. But I'm asking you a deeper question. Is Jesus himself, the person, at the center of the whole thing for you truly? It is an occupational hazard for every pastor that because we're professional Christians, we're not always aware when Jesus has completely left the building of our hearts. <clears throat> I've been having a sort of passive-aggressive wrestling match with one of my friends over the closeness of my heart to going to my reunion. And one thing I said to him was, Truth be told, I don't have a huge appetite for more relationships right now. Every, everything I do all day long is relationships. And all these relationships, I'm responsible for those people. I'm serving them in some way. And after a while, I just go, I don't want any more friends, man. I don't want to meet anyone new. I don't want to reconnect. And I've been thinking about my position on this. And it's 
been slowly revealed to me that it's an indefensible position. And that it's a sign of a deeper sickness, which is, I think, if Jesus were vibrantly living at the center of my life, I wouldn't have an attitude like that, even though logically it's totally understandable. Who can blame you, pastor? Take a break. You know, you know so many people. But something about the heart of Jesus was that he kept drawing the crowd nonetheless. It cost him sleep, cost him money, cost him everything. Eventually, it cost him his life. But he just wouldn't relent in loving people. And I've been thinking about me, because that's really the only life I can properly judge. And I think the slow leak has hit me too. So I wonder about you, because lately I'm wondering if Jesus is the engine that drives our church. This is not coming from a place of judgment or frustration. I'm not yelling at anybody. It's a real question. And I think the only way we're going to answer this question is to examine our own hearts and talk to each other about it. Has Jesus left the building, man? I mean... Let me ask you a deeper question, maybe a more intimate question. What drove you to come here this morning? Hmm? I mean, why are you here? And I'm not like in your face asking that question. I want you to wrestle with that question a little bit. Don't tell me the right answer. Just think about what is it deep inside of you. And for some of you, you shouldn't be trying to make up guilt where it doesn't exist. Some of you, you love Jesus, man. You're here. I'm not trying to make you second guess that, okay? So if you're like, what's he, why is he yelling at me? Be at peace. You're you're okay, right? A lot of you are okay. But some of us need to wrestle with the question, honest to God, why did I get in the car this morning and come here? What were you focusing on when you pulled into the driveway of the building? What have you been doing ever since you entered the building? As I walk around and observe, I know one thing that we're doing a lot of is we are connecting with each other. I think that's beautiful. It's a lot of chit-chatting going on. Sometimes I have to kind of like ring a cowbell and go, okay, but we're going to worship now and pray. That's good. I'm glad we're connecting. But I'm wondering as you walk into this building, is it looming heavily on your mind that the primary reason we've come here today is to have an encounter with Jesus Christ? Has there been an element of preparation, sober, serious preparation in you this morning coming here? Where I know that you got a lot to do, but I would love to see every last team in our church except the greeters. I'm glad the greeters come to this quiet room, but I'd like to see everything come to a screeching halt at 945. And we all just get quiet. We've got the building ready. Now we're getting our hearts ready to meet with God. I would love to see that one of the things that's heavy on our hearts is we need to prepare ourselves to meet with Jesus Christ in this building today. I don't want you to stop being friendly to each other, but I want us all together to realize that meeting Jesus is the best thing that happens here every single Sunday. Back in 2005, when I preached this message or version of it, really a pretty distant cousin of this message, Um, I lamented that I'm walking through our fellowship hall. That was back when we were in the old church building. We had a fellowship hall. And I'd be walking through some days, not talking to anybody, but just spying, eavesdropping on all the conversations taking place in the room. 
And I remember for about three weeks before that sermon, I had been doing this little experiment, taking mental notes. And what I was reporting to you guys back then was, I was dismayed at how so hard it was to hear the name Jesus being spoken in our fellowship hall. Even right after the service had happened, Jesus was not really a part of very many conversations at all. We were giving good advice. We were encouraging one another. But we were doing it in a kind of decidedly humanistic fashion. Buck up, kiddo. The economy will turn around. You'll find a job. Don't worry. I believe in you. You're going to be okay. But it was really hard to hear Jesus mentioned as the reason why we believe the future can be brighter. Now, let me give you another experience I had um, actually a couple weeks ago. There was one day when I heard Jesus' name shouted out a lot. In fact, about a dozen times that day, I heard people say, Jesus Christ! And his name was always followed by, it's hot today! Do you remember that day when it was really hot? Really hot? And I was shopping, running a bunch of errands in every store I went to. There were people going, Jesus Christ, it's hot today. I'm sorry if that offends you, but man, I heard it 12 times that day. And then I reflected on this as I was going to bed. I heard Jesus' name shouted out as a curse more times than I uttered his name as a part of my daily life today. I mean, unbelievers are swearing about Jesus more commonly than I'm talking about Jesus. Even to my children, how many times that day did I correct their behavior, scold them, instruct them, but Jesus was never a part of it. It's all about be good people. This is not proper at your age. And Jesus, you know, you know, Jesus. He's the guy in the painting in our living room and, you know, come on, you know, Jesus. And you see, I'm not saying this out of frustration. I'm just starting to worry that Jesus is leaving the building and none of us notice because his party is still going strong. Enough air is in the tire that we don't realize yet. Something might be really wrong with Christianity in the United States. By extension then, Christianity here. What do you think your coworkers or your neighbors would call you? Let me put it another way. What do you think they're already calling you behind your back? Because they're calling you something. I mean, your neighbors have a nickname for you, just like we have a nickname for all. Hey, there goes Mr. Cook's Smelly Food every Wednesday. There goes, he never brings in his garbage can until two days later. I'm going to write him up eventually. There goes Christmas lights up until Easter, guy. We all have our nicknames for our neighbors because we're watching. And everybody has one feature that's prominent. There goes the guy with the nose. You know, when you're trying to, you know him, what's his, he's the guy with, you know, the hair. The One guy, I, I was describing someone that I know. He goes, it's the guy with the Las Vegas hairstyle. And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Isn't that funny? Everybody's got a feature so prominent when we're trying to describe you to someone we don't, who doesn't really, we give you a nickname based on that. That's, in fact, how the Christians in the first church in Antioch picked up their name. You know, those guys, those, uh, those Christ guys. And I'm asking you honestly, based on everything you're showing in the fabric of your life, not when you're on the pulpit proclaiming, but your whole life shouts something. 
What's your nickname to your neighbors and to your coworkers? Are some of you regarded as the one of the Hershey-hued nose, you know, brown nosers? Are you first in, last out? Are you stares at the watch at every meeting? And as you're thinking about that, think, at least with some people, will they come to associate us with Jesus our Lord? How many of your parents? Raise your hand. I know your arms are tired from holding your kids and spanking your kids, but hold them up high. All right, so if you are a parent, here's a, this one might be hitting below the belt, okay, but what will your children call you? I mean, there's no way to fake it with them. They're watching you, and here's the crazy thing about kids. They want so badly to become you, man. I I see my kids just trying to engage me, and the things they talk to me about are the things they believe I love. And if you guys ever had a cat that's an outside cat, weren't you horrified the first time it dragged a dead and bloody squirrel to your porch? And you're like, no! You know that that cat is loving on you? A cat's instinct is, my master treats me good. I'm going to kill something and leave it. They don't know that you don't like dead, dead squirrels to eat. But to them, that's yummy stuff. So they're bringing you a gift. And children are like that. They come up to us, so hungry for praise and affirmation for a statement that says, you're just like me, I'm so proud of you. And so they boast to us, and you can learn a lot about who you are by what your children boast to you about. Mom, mom, I got a good grade. And they're waiting for the praise, the sunshine of your approval because they know the only thing you give a crud about is their grades. And if they get good grades, they can, they can expect a sun shower of approval and it feeds their heart. That's what a child is driven by. So let me ask you, parents, what do your children boast to you about? Because that's what they think you're about. That's what they think drives you or what you're most naturally, unguardedly passionate about. And I'm not saying this arrogantly. One of my son's Never misses the opportunity to tell me about an achievement in Call of Duty. So proud of him. Dad, I got a nuke today. I've never gotten a nuke in that game. So, and I'm genuinely proud of him, but I'm thinking, wow. So is that what defines me then? Because he's so ready to share that. Maybe to my son, this is the thing that's most important to me. It's what, when my guard is down and I'm not in pastor mode, it's what I get titillated about. <laughs> so excited about what? What do your children brag to you about because they so long to receive affirmation in that thing which you have clearly demonstrated is most important? I mean, some of you moms, you know, your kids are always bragging. Look how, look how clean my room is, mom, because that's what you want is order and control. I want my house at any moment to be in Good Housekeeping magazine if the photographer drops by. And you children better keep it clean. And over the years of your life, you don't realize how often they've heard you say that. But it's not that that's a bad thing. But if it so eclipses every other thing you value, then what they remember most is what was reinforced. My parents went to church. They liked that Jesus guy. But man, did they love a clean house. (laughs) You want to get mom mad... Go to church, but forget to clean your room. Oh, man, you're in trouble. And the kids know because we can't hide what's really there. 
And so I'm wondering what even our own children will call us when they say words to honor us at our 70th birthday. My dad was an incredible gamer. We bonded over that 360. I really hope to God he would change my heart and fill my life so that I never have to say that, so that they never have to say that. I want my kids to come up and brag to me that, Dad, I finally talked to that guy in the cafeteria about Jesus. I was so intimidated, but I did it. I want them to know that that's something I actually care about. And I'm really ashamed and frustrated that maybe it's not. And that's how I know that the slow leak has hit me too. What do your kids think matters to you? Physical fitness, how you dress, what? I hope that what they pick up over the years is my parents really, really followed Jesus Christ. I don't think the answer is to somehow drop Jesus' name and every kids come to Jesus' dinner, Jesus. We're going to Jesus have Jesus' dessert. I don't think that's what I'm trying to say is fake it. But, you know, like just go, God, obviously, as I hear all this, you're not really central. I want you to be, but the honest, gut level truth is you're just not. And I invite you, I plead with you, come in and push everything else out. Be the center. Let me close with one last challenge here. What I find kind of disheartening is that when someone in American Christianity, in the church, even in our church, suddenly gets it, Christ grabs their heart, they're activated, and they're now become Jesus freaks. You know what I'm talking about? That kind of person where they're like, can you just talk about like, the most recent movie for a bit. Can we talk about Avatar? It's always Jesus with you. You're so Jesus on the brain. And I know at times when they wear it the wrong way, a clumsy way, it can be somewhat irritating. But what disheartens me is that we are so ready to be annoyed by people who are so obsessed with Jesus Christ. In fact, people who are like that are often made to feel a little out of place. Calm down. We use that word. It's a very offensive word. When someone is genuinely passionate and the best thing you can do is go, hey, settle down. What's wrong with you? And that person who's finally discovered something that makes him want to run naked through the street shouting for joy, they're being told, hey, cool out, man. Chill. What are you so agitated about? Let's talk about it, but calmly. Be reasonable. Person's going, I'm going to sell everything I got. I'm just going to, I want to do something. They're just, oh. And you're like, hey, calm down. Let's take it easy. And that person then starts to feel like a freak. And I know this to be a fact because recently I've had some real hard and painful conversations with people who are asking me, is there something wrong with me? Because I can't be comfortable anymore around these people. 
I can't just pretend suburban America is cool, everything's okay. Everyone else seems to like it here. I'm going insane. Is there something wrong with me? Am I starting to go crazy? I don't know what to tell that person, man. Because here's the truth. There is a lot about American life that is grossly incompatible with biblical Christianity. I love what Mia said, quoting that person. Security or safety and comfort are not Christian values. They're American values. And the truth is, there is a lot about suburbia that, if you really think about it, is deeply disturbing in its incompatibility with New Testament Christianity. And the only way to reconcile the way we've chosen to live with what the Bible says is one, to just stop reading the Bible or read it through a rose-colored lens because, frankly, it disturbs us if we read it raw. The Bible is like a camel cigarette. Unfiltered, baby. You get all the cancer quick. It's not like a Newport menthol ultralight where you get a little slower, right? But that's what the Bible is. Yet we put filter tips and all kinds of things. We breathe it secondhand because the raw thing, frankly, freaks us out. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about having a little comfort. But I'm inviting you to stop instinctively defending your way of life. And making people who are no longer content with it feel ashamed of themselves. Because there's much to be critiqued in suburbia. And I think Jesus would have a hard time living among us if things didn't change. I think we, I I don't have all the answers, but I know this. If we start to ask Jesus to reveal it, he'll show us even this week one thing which is such a part of our life that he goes, guys, I don't understand. Why do you do that? Why is that so important to you? And if he really leads us to the answer, we might be surprised at how far we've drifted from the picture of Christ and his community. One last story. I went to a seminar, a conference this week in town with Pastor Jared. I went with a horrible attitude, by the way. (laughs) And Pastor Jared rescued me, I believe. God used him to rescue my attitude. I was amazed at this guy, man. He's just such a great attitude all the time. I'm like, all right, let's see how good it is. But God did a number on me. And one of the guys he used this week was a very surprising character. It was supposed to be a next-generation Asian-American, like, English-speaking conference. But there's some guys there who had very, very thick, heavy-duty kimchi accents. You know what I'm talking about? Like, really, like, thick accents. And I'm like, what are these guys doing here? This isn't a conference for them. But one of them was a missionary from Korea to the campuses of the United States. Presently, he's doing some great ministry on the campus of University of Chicago, his English is passable, but his accent is unmistakable. But he comes up to me, he's, he's sharing stuff. He said a few things that were just weirdly prophetic and crazy. This guy is just so out there. But one thing he said to us was, I came from Korea to be a martyr for Jesus in America. It's very hard to be a martyr in this country. <laughs> I just started laughing. So You're absolutely right. Even if you set your life goal to die for Jesus, you got to move. You can't get killed for Jesus in this country. Everyone's like, settle down. Calm yourself. Watch American Idol. Eat some In-N-Out burger. You'll feel better in the morning. 
You can't raise up anybody's hackles enough to get killed here. This is the most safe place to be a Christian anywhere in the world. And yet we have a dangerous faith and an adventurous Lord. I'm not saying try to get yourself killed. What I am saying is this. There are things about America that I believe we as the church are called to identify, name, and destroy in Jesus' name. So that at least with us, something of the beauty of New Testament faith starts to emerge. It's my heartfelt prayer that God will do that among us. And that because we've heard these words together today, he will set us off on a period of real self-exploration. Stop arguing and defending and just listen. You may be so blessed at what God reveals to you, and he may set you free from the bondage that you might be in. Why don't we just bow right now? I feel like it'd be good to pray. There's so much still swirling around in my heart, but the one thing I hope will keep rising to the top is this. If people are going to name us by anything, I think for Christ followers, we need to be named after him. I think the greatest compliment you and I will ever hear in our lives is when an unbeliever says, as you're describing Jesus to me, it sounds a lot like how you are. What an amazing thing would happen in this world if we all became so like Jesus that that's what they called us. So I'm going to leave you to it. I'm going to ask you quietly, just humbly to get before God and listen to him, say a few things to him. And then after a few minutes of that, I'm just going to invite the praise team to lead us into some singing. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.